Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. Please be advised that this production could contain Broadway shows with overall financial losses, those with less than 250 performances, some that had no national tour after their initial Broadway engagement, and Broadway shows that never actually opened on Broadway. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, Welcome back. back! I feel to like my favorite flop. I feel like I do it the exact same way we start every episode. I think that's good. Consistency is key. Right. Uh, we are on now episode six of My Favorite Crazy Flop, uh, a podcast all about musical misfits and fabulous failures of Broadway. I'm Bobby Traversa, uh, your makeshift musical theater historian and I'm Christina Miller-Weston. So I feel like you always ask me first. So I want to ask you first. Christina, oh. what have you been listening to this week? Oh, man. Okay. So I listened to Everybody Loves Jamie this week. Ooh. Yeah. Jury's still out to lunch on it. Okay. There are aspects of the cast album that I really love. Like the mom song is just like stab me in the heart and pull it out like it's so good right and she kills it and i like what i think the show is supposed to be obviously i didn't see it on the west end and it hasn't made its way to broadway yet but based on the cast album alone i feel like they tried to push it and didn't quite get there yet interesting okay so i tried to get into the album you know sure. uh when i was working at stage one of um our employees uh she was all about it and she was all about the show and she's like you need to listen to this and i tried and i feel like i felt similar to the way that you do christina but 2018 for new year's i took a solo trip to london i think i've actually mentioned that on this podcast. yeah we talked about that with six six right i saw everybody's talking about jamie and I fell in love with it. It was a okay. difficult cast recording to get into. But on stage, I really loved the show. Uh, I love the message. Um, the gentleman who played Jamie when I saw it, which I saw the original cast, minus the teacher, because I got to see Drag Race's very own Michelle Visage as oh. the teacher uh, in the show, which was lots of fun. Uh, he was he was fantastic. It was also interesting because a couple of weeks ago I was watching BBC did a owed to the West End because of COVID. Um, and they had the current Jamie get up and sing the song about the wall that's in his heart. Um, I don't remember the name of the song, but it's all about the wall that he's going to climb. Um, and he was a person of color. Oh, which interesting. was really great to see. I mean, there's no reason that it can't be. And it was nice to see that it was about casting the right person and not about casting someone who looked like the original cast member. Oh, and I think it adds just even more layers to the to the bullying aspect of the show. Yeah. If not only he is exploring uh, this side of him, it's it's pro he's probably one of the only people of color at the school, period. You know, um, yeah, uh, his best friend is Muslim, obviously. But, you know, it's that I would be really fascinating to see a person of color uh, in the show. Yeah. OK, Bobby, what have you been listening to this week? 
Well, I'm, I guess I'm going to keep it on brand. We both listen Uh-oh. to Wes End stuff. It, it is not only Mr. Stephen Sondheim's birthday on the 22nd of March. It's also Sir Andrew, Lord, Sir, something. I don't know where he's at yet. He is. I think he's a Lord, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's definitely uh, been knighted. And, but he's also a member of the House of Lords, I believe. I, I don't even understand how it works. They, they share a birthday. If you didn't know, Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber have the same birthday, which is mind-blowing. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so to stay on brand with that, I, I was trying to get into, and trying is a, is a very strong word, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella that was supposed oh, to open gosh. during covid so I listened to the three songs that I could find. Uh, I don't know if there's a full cast recording available yet or if more has been released, but I was able to find um, Bad Cinderella, which I have, I have opinions about. And then <laughs> uh, the other two songs that I actually can't even remember the titles because... Was one of them the Lonely You yeah, song? Because that's what they did on that BBC concert. Only You, Lonely You was the boy song. And then there's another right. song for Cinderella, I believe. It's also a ballad. I, yeah, so Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella. I the verdict is out. I don't hate what I've listened to, um, but uh, you know, I do think it sounds a lot more interesting than some of the stuff he was writing in the '90s. You know what I mean? Um, sure. I was a huge fan of School of Rock, which was a oh, big fat too. hit on Broadway. School uh, of Rock was absolutely fantastic absolutely so i i think it's really sad that this musical which was supposed to open last year i believe in the west yeah. end um has been postponed due to covid but i have a feeling that uh he's pretty determined to be bringing it to the west end as soon as theaters reopen again he's leading the oh. way i liked it a lot more than i did you know maybe some of the shows that he written, wrote in the 90s after sunset boulevard uh, sure. they weren't necessarily the because he's had a couple flops on broadway uh yeah. but I let's hope that this doesn't turn into one. I think people want to see shows like a musical about Cinderella after COVID, right? Yeah, I hope it follows in the footsteps of School of Rock, where oh, yeah. he surprises us. Big fat hit, and I love that show. But yeah, back to flops, <laughs> because that's what the podcast is about. Uh, we have a show <laughs> to talk about today, right? We do. But first, we need to go over our clues. Yes, we have to go over our clues. Now, I this show is a show that I, a lot of people are excited about. When we announced we were doing this podcast, people were like, you should you should cover the show. And so this yes. is a little bit of fan service. We altered our schedule to do this. But so let's see if you've maybe guessed the clues up until I now, if not. Have. So uh, should I start? You start. All right. So clue number one, which we gave at the end of our last episode, was this musical takes place in Santa Rosa, California. Clue number two was on Twitter. And it was, there once was a production in Canada that featured all of the adult characters as puppets. Yes. A la Avenue Q. That's just insane. But uh, <laughs> which brings us to clue number three, which was the visual clue on Instagram. Uh, and it was a picture of a group of girls at the piano with composer Marvin Hamlish. Speaking of Marvin Hamlish, uh, you wrote that awesome blog post about flops of Pulitzer Prize winning composers. Right, because he totally won the Pulitzer for a chorus line, but not yep. for this show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and that leads us to our last and final clue, uh, is that this show starred Jody Benson, who, uh, if you don't know the name, you should, because she is still the voice of Ariel and the Little Mermaid. Not just yes. in the film, but sequels, theme parks, parades, uh, video games. She still Ralph does Ralph breaks Ariel. the internet, too. 
she still does Ariel everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is, it is, she loves doing Ariel and people love to hear it. Um, all right. So if you haven't gotten it yet, uh, let's go ahead and give it to him, Christina. Yeah. Drum roll. Drum roll. Smile. It's the simplest title we've had in a while. I mean, we went from shows like Flora the Red Menace, Honeymoon in Vegas, Smile. There you go. Smile. Uh, smile. People are passionate about this show. Uh, yes. This is this is one of those shows when you talk about Broadway flops that is commonly brought up. Um, people mm. have opinions. Uh, there are many people who feel this show got a bum rap. Uh, they would love to see it revived. Uh, this is a show that a lot of people who are heavily invested in musical theater um, are passionate about. I kind of get it. I wasn't privy to seeing it on stage, but every person I know who is like true champion of this show, they they just fell in love with it. It, it touched heartstrings, so to speak. Right. And I think there's a lot, you know, the myth and mythos of at least one of the creative forces behind it. Mm. Um, I think I think that adds to it, you know, uh, for sure. The show was written, it was composed by Marvin Hamlish, obviously, who had done a chorus line and, and many other things. But the book was written and the lyrics were written by Howard Ashman, who... Who's one of my favorite lyricists. I mean, you know, if if you don't know him from his stage work, which you should, because Little Shop of Horrors, uh, he yes. definitely <laughs> wrote a big chunk of, I think, a lot of people's childhoods. You know, The Little Mermaid, yeah. Beauty and the Beast, uh, and Aladdin. Even some of Aladdin, yeah. So it, he means a lot to people, even if they don't know specifically he is responsible for a lot of the reasons yeah. and so this show i think being his only broadway show this is the only yeah. one uh, which is he, crazy to think that he physically worked on um i think that adds to the myth and mythos of smile and smile. its failure and things like that yeah. so where should we start because this this broadway show took a second to get to broadway right and it's um, it did. it's not an original musical it's, it's, it's not. It's based on um, a film that came out in 1975 that Jerry Belson was at the helm of. And mm -hmm. it, it was very, I mean, I wasn't able to find the film anywhere where I could like go and watch it. It didn't right. seem to exist anywhere. But based on what I've read about it, it was very much like Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, before Drop Dead, yeah. Yeah, it had that that odd parody feel to it when they were kind of commentating on pageants and pageant life but also small town america and so it comes from that space but that being said there's a lot that changed from the film to the stage show right well yeah so this movie this 1975 film was critically adored uh, it, caught, it was a low-budget film. Uh, it was a $1.3 million budget. Uh, critics loved it. It was a dark satire, like you said, of the pageant world, of small-town America, of suburban white suburbia. Uh, yeah. It's over the top. Um, it is... It is. It's. It's crazy. I didn't get a chance to see the film either. You cannot track it down unless you spend lots and lots of money on a DVD on like eBay. It's not available yeah, for streaming. Yeah, AFI though says that it's one of the top films of the seventies. Oh yeah, no critics top loved it, five. but it totally flopped at the box office. So this is the definition of a cult movie. You know, yeah. um, critics loved it. It has huge fans. People in the industry loved it. It's considered yeah. a major piece of film history. But again, it wasn't like 
a, a huge block, block, you know, box office blockbuster. So it's not like we can watch it on Netflix today. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah. So this movie obviously attracted the attention of a lot of people, uh, including the screenwriter who really was like, this should be a musical. It sings like this. This piece should be a musical. So as soon as 1980 is when uh, he was convinced to start uh, working on it with with several people. And, yeah, I um, mean, the story itself is heightened and the film was very heightened. So it makes sense that it would go to the extremes of a musical in the sense that the stakes are so high. Right. What else do you do? Right. Where else do you go with the storytelling? Right. Well, in the 1970s, saw so many groundbreaking musicals that, you know, they 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 really broke the mold of the the golden age boy meets girl story. So coming yeah. out of the 70s with the works of people like, you know, we've talked on this podcast before, Hal Prince, and uh, we will be talking one day about Stephen Sondheim uh, and Andrew Lloyd Webber on, on this podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, Candor and Ebb, these are people, Bob Fosse, these are people who pushed the envelope of what a musical could be. So out of the 70s, yeah. Well, let's... and Hamlish even, because at that point, Chorus Line had already come out and that came out in the late 70s. Oh, and that's why it won the Pulitzer. It's It was groundbreaking. Yeah. Like, oh, you're going to let the dancers talk? This is craziness. <laughs> and it's not going to be about a love story between a man and a woman? And the love what? song is going to be about dancing? What is this? And about the love of the art? Um, What's happening? So Smile made all the sense. Uh, if they had yeah. only known the 80s were coming. And the oh, 80s were the a... 80s were a really tough time for musicals, which is ironic because you had things like Les Mis and Saigon coming out of it. But and cats. And it, it, oh, and it all kind of plays into this. OK, so uh, <laughs> we have to we have to get to the journey because before we get to yeah. Broadway, there are technically officially three different versions of Smile. If you track the uh, New York Times articles that came out through the entire like uh, creative process, they called them like Smile 1.0, Smile 2.0, <laughs> Smile 3.0. So Smile 1.0 was technically um, technically the idea of movie producer Lawrence Gordon, who was close friends with Jerry Belson and said, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's make this musical happen. So the two of them teamed up uh, right around 1980. So the movie had only been out for about five years. Um, and uh, they approached Marvin Hamlish from the get go uh, because of a chorus line was like, you're the I mean, one to do it. He was also writing big like movie songs and pop songs. And Barbara yeah, Streisand. he was a name. Yeah. And so Marvin Hamlish was brought on board and he brought his first lyricist, which was Carolyn Lay, uh, who, oh. yeah. So Carolyn Lay was the first lyricist to join the Smile Project. And uh, Carolyn Lay had written a lot of classic, classic musicals uh, and right. had composed with a lot of famous people, um, you know, most notably working with Cy Coleman until they eventually had a breakup. But they did, you know, things like Wildcat and... Um, oh, Wildcat. Uh, uh, Little Me and things like that back in the 1960s uh, and uh, 50s, 60s. And so Carolyn Lay, female lyricist, which is rare on Broadway. It is rare, very rare, unfortunately. Uh, was brought on and Thomas Meehan, who had just written the book to Annie, which was a big fat hit on Broadway, was write, brought in to write the book. And they did a workshop at Sardi's uh, because apparently you can do that there didn't know that's cool <laughs> they did a workshop at sardis it's like pre don't tell mamas everybody hated it <laughs> and that was the end of smile 1.0 oh no so then smile 2.0 because marvin hamlish was determined he was like into it he's like this is a this is a good idea for a musical we just didn't right. get it right 
uh, decided to keep um, Carolyn Lay as lyricist. Okay. Uh, but fired Thomas Meehan as the book writer. Okay. I was like, no more Annie. We're going to go away from that. Uh, and they uh, brought in uh, Jack... Uh, Jack Hefner, who had written the off-Broadway show Vanities, you know everyone knows oh, Vanities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. was like, that's the kind of book we need for Smile. Sure, sure. Which makes sense, I mean, actually. he's a little edgier. He's He pushes the envelope a little more. That makes sense. Right. And uh, they brought in Graciela Danielle, who was a dancer, but had just famously choreographed um, Pirates of Penzance at the Public Theater with Kevin Klein and everybody. Oh, so I love it. That was a big deal. And they brought her in to stage this workshop for $300,000. Wow. It's a lot of money for a workshop. And yeah. uh, the producers um, left the project after the workshop uh, because they oh. didn't enjoy it. And then Carolyn Lay died like right after this <gasps> workshop. Oh, no. Yeah. So she passed away from a heart ailment. And mm. uh, so it kind of seemed like the end of the road for Smile until Marvin Hamlish was like, nah, I'm not ready. He's not giving up. And it, I want people to remember this. Marvin Hamlish is determined to get Smile done because when we get later in the Smile story, that might shock you. So, yeah. Uh, Marvin Hamlish is determined. Carolyn Leigh dies, contacts Howard Ashman, who is now a huge deal because of Little Shop before. Right, because uh, at this point, Little Shop had been on for a couple of years. Yeah, a couple of years. I think maybe had just sold the film rights to Warner Brothers, which was yeah. a huge deal. And Howard Ashman's like, that's funny. I applied to be your lyricist your and book lyricist. writer in 1980, and you turned me down. Uh, but I still want to do it. But do you know what Howard Ashman's demand was? He wanted to write the book as well. Right. He wanted to write the book and he wanted to completely start all over. He said, I I get oh, you want me to do this. To scrap everything. He's like, I want I need you to get rid of all of Carolyn Lay's lyrics. I want you to get rid of the songs you wrote with her. We're going to write brand new songs. Uh, so like I'm not putting my lyrics on her songs. Uh, right, and I want to write fair. the book. Um, and so that was his demand. And Marvin Hamlish said yes. And they collectively only decided to keep one song uh, that one? existed. Uh, the title song, Smile. Oh, okay. That so was how, yeah. So Howard wrote new lyrics to it, but okay. that was the only existing piece from the original versions of Smile that were kept. Otherwise, they completely started all over again. So I mean, that makes sense. The first two didn't work, right? right? They just didn't work. And at some point, you have to say, okay, well, either we just walk away from this completely or we start over. And they did. So they decided to start all over it. So it was almost like a brand new project for the team. And this is officially Smile 3.0, uh, the version that eventually would get to Broadway. So now I've caught us all up and <laughs> we can. And we're here. And we're here. Smile as we know it. No more Carolyn Lay. No more Annie. No more Vanities. It's all gone. No. And I would be interested to see. So the movie actually spends a lot of time focusing on the male storylines. Right. Not the females, which is interesting because it's all about a beauty pageant with ladies. Right. Um, but it actually focuses on the men. Um, uh, there's like a dramatic turn in it where um uh, the male judge ends up um shooting his wife who's head of the pageant. Oh, and, right. like yeah, she Brenda's doesn't husband. turn him in and they decide to work it out, and you're just like reading it, reading it on paper, I'm sure is very different from watching the film, right? There's a lot of nuances missed, but I was sitting there reading this saying oh my gosh how this whoa whoa 
first of all, I knew it was a dark comedy and a commentary film, but wow, that was not what I was expecting. Well, I think the idea, again, I'm I'm conjecturing because I didn't get a chance. This is really unfortunate that neither of us could get a chance to watch the film uh, that it's based on because it's not available. Uh, but I imagine it's the kind of thing that she gets shot, but she is so, the archetype, she is so determined to make this pageant work. Yeah, she and gets up and does from. it, and it's supposed to be funny. But then I he think. becomes so depressed, right? That he's like contemplating suicide and apparently attempts it and fails. Yeah, and she brushes it under the rug, and you're like, "What is happening?" Again, reading it is very different. It's a stark contrast from watching anything. Yes, it's a dark movie, regardless. Yeah. it's a dark movie, and then and none he... of that happens in the musical. Just so everyone's clear, <laughs> and I think that was a strong choice. Yeah. So where, okay. So we have Howard Ashman brought on, um, he's writing the book and he's writing the lyrics. Marvin Hamlish is still writing the music. He's writing brand new music for it. Um, Howard Ashman would also end up directing it just like he did on Little Shop. Uh, mm. and he has been quoted, uh, you know, um, in various places of saying one of the reasons he likes to direct his own shows, uh, is because he doesn't, doesn't trust a lot of people in the industry, with his material, you know, there are right. a few people who were working at the time. However, I don't know if you saw this. He actually didn't want to direct this. They they interviewed people and they interviewed a they interviewed. Oh, a big one. wow. That I didn't know. I just know that he is well known for wanting to maintain control because he has a very strong point of view and a very strong vision for things. And he wants to make sure that that vision isn't bent to the will of somebody else. Right. Well, so this was a big deal for Howard Ashman because, um, you know, he had been working off Broadway and even Little Shop, the original production stayed off Broadway. They did not yeah. transfer it. Even with big money involved, it stayed off Broadway. No, it didn't uh, come to Broadway until the 90s. 2000s. 2000s. Oh, OK. I think 2003. Yeah. Um, so he he Little Shop was really the first success he had as a writer. Uh, mm. And there were there were some failures before that. And so to be entrusted with this first Broadway show, I think he understood the magnitude of it. So he was open. Yeah. They famously interviewed. Uh, and I was lucky enough to read a transcript between Marvin Hamlish, Howard Ashman and Bob Fosse. So oh, of wow. the few people that uh, Howard Ashman thought would be a right fit for the material other than him was Bob Fosse. And it was a fascinating conversation. I don't think they'd even finished writing the whole show yet. I think maybe just act one. Um, okay. And uh, Bob Fosse had a lot of interesting comments on what they had written and where they were going with the material um, and was very much not, I don't want to do this, but... I think he could sense that there may have been a power struggle with Ashman because at one point during the interview, he says, I will not come in and just stage your show. Like, if mm. I come in, I am part of the creative team. Like, right. that's what Fosse was not interested in, just staging someone no, else's musical. that's not his MO at all. And they, they were like, oh, we totally understand that. But he definitely let that go in the interview. Um, but he he had some interesting observations about the way they adapted the material. Um, and I think... As we continue to talk about the show, some of the things that I think Fosse recognized may have led to, I don't know if the downfall necessarily, but to what ended up on Broadway. Well, I think it's let's paint the picture of what was happening at the time in New York. Right. right. So at the time, the other musicals that were happening were Me and My Girl, Rags, Les Mis, so, Starlight Express. So you Mikado. have to like you have to like 
you have to break them up, though, because yeah, I mean, the first half of the season was a bunch of American musicals that flopped. And, and then, then the second half was all from London, all these British imports. And I think it was on 60 Minutes. Howard Ashman was like, the reason Smile needs to succeed is because there needs to be an American, an American musical. musical on Broadway, because right. this was the British invasion, not the Beatles, but Cameron Mack. No, this is the second the second wave of British invasion. Cats, cats, <laughs> cats. Kitties and trains and phantoms. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> but really, that's what was happening. There was also a ton of this was the year of the play revival as well. Right. You had arsenic and old lace. Nicholas Nickleby. Oh, um, Nicholas B was huge. That was a transfer huge. from the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it was exactly. a commercial Another transfer. British invasion. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of this seepage of like, is the American musical still alive? Right. And, right? and it's the 80s. So we went from the sexually liberating 60s. In 70s, we got out of the disco era uh, yep. into Reaganism. And all of a sudden, America is super conservative, super right. capitalist, you know. Yep. So this show had to speak to an American audience that I don't know. I don't know if the movie would have been a hit when this musical came out. So if the movie wouldn't have been a hit, like... That's the thing is there was pop culture at the time there was a lot of stuff happening with the space run so you had the space station launched um you also unfortunately there was the, the challenger um, the challenger uh, it, which is just horrible but then you all chernobyl let's take what year was was that 1985 as well Six? 1986 in april oh my gosh so so there this is like but then you also had Oprah debuting, which is very American. Like Oprah's talk show debuted in the right. second half of the year. Right. But like, I don't know. There's this weird cacophony of things happening that year where in terms of Broadway, you had all of this invasion of a different style and a different type of show. And right. These epics, really, because not only were the epics happening like Les Mis on Broadway, but at the same time, Phantom's opening on the West End. Right. And the buzz from that was massive. Oh, and it was it was coming into New York. They knew it. They knew it was coming. Right. So I smile next to those shows is relatively small and simple. Well, right? and at its heart, it's supposed to be a satire on America, suburban life conservatism all of and this and instead these other shows are fantastical yeah and if and you look live at the, in their own worlds well and you look at the american musicals that succeeded in the 80s like you've got sunday in the park with george winning the pulitzer mm. it's about france and paintings and and characters coming to life out of a painting like and then you've got into the woods which technically flopped which is about all the fairy tales. So it's not oh, like we were up into the woods, but it's not like Sondheim was writing company in the eighties, you know? No. So like we weren't getting big musicals that criticized American society. And so this musical happens. And I think, I mean, I think it's clear they felt pressure to change it because we've talked about how dark and satirical this movie is. That's not what smile was when it got to Broadway. So I listened to a cast recording that's available on YouTube that was um, created after the show closed for licensing for Sam French. Right. Unofficial. So they could have. Yeah. So they could have reference tracks for anyone who wanted to try and license the show. Um, 
and listening to that was really interesting because you could hear elements of what later would become Howard Ashman's work with Disney. Right. And not just Disneyland, Bobby. I mean, but I love that song. just the song Disneyland. I know I do, too. It's a wonderful song, and it's great for every 18-year-old trying to get into college. But um, it, it was... You could hear elements of where he would eventually go in his career, which is right. kind of really interesting, but also does not lend itself to this edgier commentary. Film. No, I and I. So before we went into researching this episode, I think mm. I was a bigger Smile fan than I am now. I'm still on Team Smile, but I have a much more critical eye about it because in doing this dive. This, I dare say, should have been a rock score. Reading the breakdown of the film, that's what I was hearing as well. Yeah. I agree. And so, and we, you know me, I love a good rock score. I think that we've established that. Yeah. And so we get this Marvin Hamlish, Howard Ashman, which is very sophisticated too. So you're hearing the roots of where he would take Disney. So it's his, mm-hmm. it's his evolution from Little Shop on his stepping stool to Disney, but it's also an evolution of Hamlish as a composer, um, you know, and I think it's it's one of the detriments of it. What he did with this score is so fascinating is he didn't write songs. Disneyland is one of the few songs in Smile. He wrote yeah. sequences, and they're very similar yes. to the Hello 12, Hello 13 montage from A Chorus Line, but this show, every song is one of those, and it's yeah. fascinating to listen to, and it's fascinating to watch However, I think as much of an awesome experiment as it was, you know, we're in 2021 now, right? That obviously hasn't evolved to be the way we write musicals. uh, Well, you say that, but you have things like Les Mis, you have things like Hamilton that do follow that. Yes, on the whole, but you still have those pull-out numbers, you know what I mean? I just don't think Smile had enough of those. You know, the music, regardless of there not being standalone songs or not, is great. It's Marvin Hamlish and Howard yeah. Ashman. Like, and it's really interesting, smart lyrics, of course. Oh, and 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 it goes there. Like in the opening number, um, in Typical High School Senior, which I think is a fantastic montage. It's so fun. You know, they're the ones when they're in public and it's like, and she probably works on yearbook, but then when they're in their own world, world right. it's like uh, she puts rum in her Coke and she da-da-da-ba, you know, like yeah. she has, it, it does do this whole behind the veil and you're like, okay, yeah. maybe this does go there. But I, I don't know. It just didn't feel that way watching it. There are moments where it just feels like they didn't follow through. Yeah, it's just weird. Like it still wound up somewhere in the middle. Like I don't, I, I don't study writing musicals, but I actually, I, I hope that this show is taught to people because it's this fascinating middle ground where you see this movement that would become part of the fabric of the American musical. But it's in its infancy almost, you know, it's 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 super fascinating. The score is so interesting. I just feel like there were many instances where they could have gone farther. Yeah. I don't know if someone was holding them back. They were holding themselves back. They were trying to make choices that were popular. Right. So there's this pressure and there's this pressure. The show, you know, it had failed twice. They had already lost several hundred thousand dollars with Howard Ashman. I think one of the reasons uh, Marvin Hamlish wanted him was because he brought with him, at least initially, David Geffen and the Mm. Schubert's who had produced Little Shop of Horrors. They financed their workshop. 
And, um, you know, they were big proponents. You know, David Geffen is one of the producers of the Little Shop movie as well. You know, right. uh, he was a big Howard supporter. Uh, so he came, they, they came with uh, the project and they left after the workshop. So I think that might have been a like, maybe this isn't quite working if david geffen and the schubert's yeah it's still not there yet leave um but so they they have this workshop that doesn't work but it still excites people people are excited and marvin is still like determined to get the show he i don't know if you read this he traveled after david geffen and the schubert's pulled out they still had money to raise for broadway i want to say three million bucks and they traveled the country him and a group of girls from the chorus called the marvettes that's what they called themselves and they literally (laughs) just they played like like um like the Kiwanis like like they would do in a pageant they yeah. played like like Rotary clubs and right. they sang songs from Smile with Marvin Havish Did they have the a piano. tip jar out like that's what it sounds like <laughs> pretty much and people just wrote checks and they traveled the U S and Marvin Havish was like come on girls you're gonna sing these Here songs we go. and people were all about it like it, I the... mean that's like that's like the version of the GoFundMe isn't it it I mean Marvin Hamlish like pioneered this like yeah he is like okay, David Geffen and the Schubert, you don't want to produce my musical? Well, I think my musical's awesome. We're going on the road. Like, someone right. should make a musical about the making of Smile because... Actually, I think that would be really interesting. I mean, the, there have been several documentaries that have touched on it right. to a certain extent. I mean, even the Howard documentary that's on oh, Disney Plus right now, which, which if is... you have not gone and watched, I need you all to just put a pause on our episode right. and go watch it. It's an hour in 20 of your life go watch it it's absolutely stunning it'll break your heart and it'll it if, if oh, you know gosh. things about howard because i knew a lot and i still was in tears but for a lot oh, of yeah. people people just don't know uh, so many of the things and uh no i don't think anybody knows exactly when spoiler alert howard was diagnosed with hiv you know because he didn't seem to be public about it yeah but i I think it could be imagined that it's sometime around this time. So even if he wasn't aware, you know, he was writing songs about the AIDS pandemic at this time. You know what I mean? Famously, the song Sheridan Square, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard, literally about his friends dying in Greenwich Village from this pandemic. Yeah. his world is on fire because of this. And I'm, I, whether he knows he's going to get or already has this disease, there's this sense of urgency. Not only am I this new composer on Broadway, whatever, there is a pandemic that, that I might get that might take me. So there is this push. He has got yeah. to make this show work. You know, yeah. uh, it's all of it to say that I don't think that the right mindset was there in the creative room to write the best musical possible. I think yeah. the mindset was, we have to make it work for all these other people, but not us, you know? Yeah. Um, it was interesting because watching the Howard documentary... Um, both Alan Menken and um, his sister talk about how Howard truly believed that if he had had more control over Smile creatively without having to answer to anybody else, Smile would have worked. But the thing about Howard is that even from the beginning, he never compromised excellence. Right. He was well-known, and it's something that I honestly haven't seen from the majority of people I've worked with in my career where he he is more he was more likely to hire and work with an actor 
who may not have been the most incredible singer. Right. But was an incredible actor and, yes, could sing. But it was about the words and it was about the story you're telling. And that expectation of excellence and never letting it go and never compromising is rare to find. Why are you singing that note? Why is that held out note on that word? Right. Back to the basics. I love Patti LuPone talks about this in a recent interview. And it's the expectation needs to go back to what's the story we're telling. And man, Howard Ashman was about that every step of the way. Right. Every step of the way. Well, and I think that's why, you know, Bob Fosse being of the same breed, I think that's one of the few people in the industry that he felt he could trust. I mean, literally the same when you look at Fosse's career and the people he worked with in the shows and films he did. So let's talk about the plot of this musical. Right. At at base value, this is about a beauty pageant in Santa Rosa, California. Um, I think it's a regional pageant because the idea is whoever wins this goes somewhere larger than that. Yeah, I think it goes to nationals or regionals or something. Brenda is a former contestant, one runner up because I think her nerves got the best of her or maybe she was crazy. Don't know exactly. (laughs) But so she's living her former. It's very miscongeniality, actually. It's so miscongeniality. (laughs) Um, I absolutely love that movie. uh, (laughs) But so it's her. They've gotten rid of her husband character from the movie and instead the pageant guy, the the Bob, who's the used, yeah. yeah, is now her husband in the musical, and he's a used car salesman. So, anyways, it's about her and him and their relationship, and all these girls who are all kind of fake. You know, the only genuine person I think in this entire musical is Robin, which is shocking because she's really not who we're pointed to. To it's very conflicting about who we're supposed to root for because it yeah. should be Robin. But it's kind yeah. of Doria who sings Disneyland, which you think but then is the sweet. I also like start rooting for Maria. And it should be Maria. Okay, so there are so many things <laughs> that should happen in the show. But anyway, so they're all competing. Um, and and Robin's the only good person in the show because even Maria, you, you think Maria is so sweet and innocent, uh, but so she is. She is the ethnic pageant girl. Oh, she is. She's Mexican American. But here we are. Yeah, she she. But the thing is, is she's just as bad as the other girls. They all play up their, right. their whatever. She plays up the most ridiculous over-the-top accent. And she I think she yeah. makes guacamole as her talent. Yeah. <laughs> in and a microwave, which makes no sense. Um, listening to her song, I was like, I feel like this is insulting, but I'm well, not and, sure. But it's a, so the tone, because if you're going at the movie, it absolutely makes sense. She's playing it up because she knows that's what the white judges want to see from the Mexican-American. They want to see the token. And what's supposed to happen, and I don't think that this is clear, is that she does this over-the-top, you know, have a beef enchilada. It's a really great song, but it's offensive as well. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) she does this song making guacamole in a microwave, which makes no sense. Um, No. But then when she gets off stage, the accent's supposed to go away. And the other girls are supposed to be mad at her because she's playing the ethnic card. And they can't do that because they're not ethnic. Because all these girls are supposed to be at each other's throats. But the musical is so saccharine and sweet that none of that... Because I watched the entire Broadway production. There's also that scene slash song where they're like having a sleepover or something. And they like actually get to know each other. Oh, And they like have a moment... Yeah, and it's like, I think that's when Disneyland comes into play, maybe. 
But like, oh, they have this moment so. where like a couple of them like start to get to know each other, and you're like, oh, look at this! It's about female empowerment and how we're going to build each other up. And then it takes a turn right, and that's not what happens. Well, yeah, and so, so I just get confused. I'm like, I don't know if I like any of you. Yeah, so so they compete in this pageant. Robin, not Robin, Maria wins things because she plays up right. the Mexican American. She's thing. the one to like win win. Pisses off the other girls in the competition. Side plot. And then they do this horrible thing. Horrible thing. But uh, like, so side plot, the the, the Brenda, you know, the madam, yep, her the son <laughs> is just unchecked because she's in her own world. And Bob, her husband, car salesman, is in her own world. Him and his buddy, these little boys, are like gasping for attention. So they are trading nude photos of the girls in the competition. Yeah, they've to like their word a hole in the wall or something. Kids and they keep in the play pictures of them in the dressing room. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's actually clear if they take a picture of Maria or if they take a picture of Sean, who is the one who right. catches them at the end of Act One. It's not clear because I read the script too. The yeah. libretto. It, they take a picture of her, but I think they use her picture. Anyway, in the big like pageant you know they do right. this number it's the title song smile and all the girls come out with their parasols and then there are big photos of them where they all get to like say something in front of their photos right. their 80s glamour shot but when and Maria then she comes, comes out, out yeah and that photo ends up behind her the and nude it's picture. like the worst version of viral bullying you know right. pre-viral <laughs> and uh so <sighs> so then and then she runs out and in the in the libretto I read, you find out that she was supposed to be a finalist, like she was supposed to win, right. basically. Um, but then she's disqualified because she leaves, and then nobody and cares about her. Come she's back. she's just gone. So, but that's what I'm saying is like she just disappears, and like no one tries to find her and apologize and be like, let's all win together. You know, I would have even accepted that, but and, like she just disappears. But the thing is, is as dark as what we've been saying. Again, I I watched. Um, a bootleg, because that's what I, I try to do uh, when we do this, <laughs> of the Broadway show. This all sounds darker than the what ended up on Broadway. So I think that they felt pressured to sanitize it because it really right. comes across as, a like, not even a course line, because course line goes dark places. Yeah. It comes across like Legally Blonde a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's like... I don't know. There was something... Uh, the second act feels disingenuous to the first act. Yeah. I didn't know Which who to is weird. I didn't know who to root for. Speaking of who to root for, this cast was... He cast some fantastic people, right? Uh, wonderful this cast, people. Jody Benson, we've mentioned it, who he eventually... So when Smile flopped, just, you know, to, to, to fast forward for two seconds, he felt so bad because he had gotten this gig with Disney to work on The Little Mermaid, which nobody right. knew it was going to be a hit. It was like, they didn't care. No, uh, this is uh, when <laughs> Disney animation was like, well, I don't know. You can go over there in a warehouse in Glendale. Right. It was in those portable units you used to have at your middle school that they put the yep. teachers they didn't like in. Um, but so he, he because of that, Disney was like, we, you know, we don't care who we're going to cast. They let Howard audition his entire cast of Smile to be in the mm -hmm. movie. And Jodie Benson eventually got the role of Ariel as the Little Mermaid. But she's not the only one. Anna Marie Bobby, who played um, Robin, the other female lead in the show, yes. discovered her. She was like 17, 18 when she did this. Yeah. So instead of casting a Broadway vet with a bunch of credits, they went out and found like an actual like girl like who had never done anything. First Broadway first professional credit was this show uh, right. 
And then he also, you know, put in people like Marsha Waterbury, who had done Little Shop right. for him, um, was one of the replacements for Audrey in the original off-Broadway production. And even she did it is internationally. amazing. She and, did Billy yeah. Elliot here in L.A. And she's she's now a big L.A. stage star. I absolutely adore her. As she is so much fun to talk to. Marsha Water. She's also gone by a couple of different last names, too. Um, Marsha yeah. Skaggs is what I think she was in Little Shop, um, if, if you're trying to place her. But uh, really fantastic people in this show. Um, a lot of wonderful people. Vianne and what's Cox, interesting... Vianne Cox, who is like just in it as somebody. <laughs> she's the girl who ends up winning the competition at the end. But oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, she, yeah. She, we talked about her in Flora. She was Flora in the revival a couple years after this. Yep. And then she is the Caucasian stepsister in the Whitney Houston Cinderella, which is now available on Disney+, Plus, which is so exciting. Woo-hoo! They finally figured out the licensing for that. But really great cast. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, really I was just going to say that in, it, it's interesting that you bring up these wonderful epic women because the musical definitely follows the story of the pageant girls more closely than the film did. But one thing that I noticed listening to the cast album that I was really sad about is that Maria's storyline disappears like halfway through act two. And I was like, but wait a minute, you can't just wait. She just leaves and like no one says anything and no one goes and finds her and she doesn't come back and win the pageant. Ah! So there are a lot of problems with this show. (laughs) And one of the things Fosse actually in this conversation with them brings up is wow, you've really refocused this material on the girls. Right. Uh, and he, and he, I think he says so much as like, I don't know if that's the smart idea, but it fascinates me because he's like, I think he says that's where I would want to focus it. But I think he states at the same time, this movie is really about the adults and, and the yeah. shadiness of the adults. So going in, they've already made a tonal shift that it's about these girls, which you know, which is great because you adapt things, right? So they've made this yeah. tonal shift where the adults, they don't even really do much. You know, the recording you listen to is a revised version they wrote after Broadway. The right. adults okay. sing more on that than they actually did on Broadway, Christina. They sang even oh, less interesting. than you listen to, which is okay. interesting. Because the, like, madam, I'm going to call her. <laughs> Brenda, <laughs> yeah, who Marsha Waterbury plays. Yeah, but I like to call her the madam because that's how it feels. <laughs> But she's in charge, right? Like she is the one setting the tone and the expectation for these girls and what what they should be. Right. And what they should aspire to be, which is really not someone who, who young girls should aspire to be. Right. Um, and it's them kind of fighting the man or fighting her on right. that. Right. And trying to forge their own way through it. But yet at the end, it still feels like she wins. Yeah. And the girls don't. Right. Also, what's so sad about this show is it opens November 24th, 1986. Right. And it only plays 48 performances. Uh, You know, opening night. Yeah. The opening night story was really heartbreaking. Like both Marvin Hamlish and Howard Ashman were really excited. They were actually like on the same page, excited about all of it. And in the Howard documentary, they talk about how... They were all excited. They stay up late. They stay up until the reviews come right. out. They, they actually go, go to the New York Times building. They and go wait. to the New York Times building. They get the first draft off the presses. They look at it. And the story that's told is someone was standing behind them. I don't remember which person, but Marvin is there 
Howard is there. They're both reading it. And Marvin literally finishes reading the review, folds it, hands the paper to Howard and walks away without speaking to anybody. And then is like not hardly seen again. And never shows up again. Which like doesn't come back to the theater, doesn't participate in anything, just ghosts everybody. Which Again, that's why I wanted to make a, such a big deal about how much of a cheerleader he was throughout the entire creative process. You know, he lost well, collaborators. Well, and if he started this process at, in 1980, <sighs> right. it is now 1986, end of 1986. I mean, that is six years of his life right? dedicated to making this story happen, right? going through three versions with different other creatives right and it's still not working i mean that's heartbreaking that's heartbreaking for anyone we're covering shows that didn't work we're covering shows that that people do carry trauma with you know Mm -hmm. and um you know luckily we haven't encountered that a lot but you know people invest time they invest money they invest uh, you know big chunks of their lives on on the things that we're covering that don't end up working and what we're trying to do is unearth these things and show them love and to share some of this love with people uh but sometimes that's tough for people to 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 get past you know marvin distanced himself from smile howard didn't distance himself from the show but he distanced himself from broadway he was like it's this is it broadway yeah. doesn't want me And, you know, due to a very, very convenient series of events, ended up in Hollywood working for the Walt Disney Corporation and basically single-handedly, Howard Ashman, revitalizing the animation department. And when Little Mermaid came out, man, they were like, whoa, wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's so tragic because he disowns Broadway after Smile. Yeah. He, he, he does Little Mermaid. By this point, he knows he's sick. It's a ticking yeah. time bomb because this is before better drugs became available to take HIV AIDS from being a lethal disease into a manageable chronic lifetime illness. He was just a couple years too early, which yeah. is very sad. But he does this. He does Beauty and the Beast. Aladdin was 100% his idea, which is why um, the Broadway version incorporates so much of the cut material because Alan Menken was like, I can't do this without paying homage. This is Howard's project. He's not here. But it's so sad because he didn't see Beauty and the Beast open in movie theaters. And Beauty and the Beast became, I'm going to tear up. You've done this on this podcast. I'm going to do it. (laughs) It was the first animated picture to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And they changed the rules because of Beauty and the Beast because the Academy Awards are like, okay, this is cool, but we don't want to see this keep happening. So they they created the animated film Oscar because Beauty and the Beast Beast almost won. won. And every reviewer was like, this is the best Broadway musical that's not on Broadway. And it's just so sad because he didn't see that. He didn't get to see any of that. He poured... Literally, but and they dedicate husband, the movie. Or, sorry, his partner, his life partner, did right. get to go on stage and accept his Oscar Ugh, for best yeah. score. And that speech is just, it's so special. It was like when I watched B- Buddha Judge um, be sworn in and his husband standing next to him. Like it means so much to see that representation and his brilliance and his strive for never ending excellence is what brought that to the forefront. Yeah, it's just it's 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 a shame that Smile didn't work. And I do and I do feel Smile doesn't work as a show. I actually don't know after looking at all of this that Smile 
because everybody's unfortunately no longer with us. Howard Ashman yeah. passed in the 90s. How, uh, Marvin Hamlish passed several years ago. Um, I don't know if the show can be fixed with nobody around from the team. I actually, which is too bad because I think that the premise is there. Which the is, seeds are there. Which is why I think someone else needs to just do Drop Dead Gorgeous the musical and do it right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to our little, uh, I don't know, what, what would we call that? Like, analyzation? Yeah, I think that was more of an analyzation than some of our other episodes. Yeah. Analyzation. About... Is that a word? We're, we you know be... what, friends? It's a word here at My Favorite Flop. It's a word here at My Favorite Flop. Well, we will leave you with that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but before we do, uh, we want to remind you again to make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. Click the little button on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and if you love it, love it, love it, give us a five-star review. We love it so much. Uh, Christina, where can you find us on the internet? Oh, you can find us at all the places. The Book of Face, the Gram. The Tickety Talks, even. Yes, we're on TikTok. Go find us. Bobby posts some really awesome footage there. And hopefully soon, we'll be seeing us being ridiculous. I mean, there might be more drag makeup. That happened during Taboo. That definitely happened during <laughs> And Taboo. there might be some more singing. Uh, and speaking of socials, that's where you're going to find all of the clues for our next all episode. The but the first one, uh, I'm going to give it to you right now. So, Christina, do you think they're ready for it? Oh, I think they're right. Okay. This is a hard one. We're making these hard because people keep guessing way too early. So, uh, But I also love that you all are invested in them. You're invested. I mean, we legit have people who are now DMing us and they're like, is it this one? We're like, yes. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, okay. Keep the secret. But the first clue for episode seven is this. This musical once had the same title as another famous Broadway flop. Ooh. Dun, 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 dun. Which one is it? I mean, the, I this I I don't know if anyone's gonna get that, and I'm really excited I'm because really, <laughs> I'm really excited to like actually give the answer to that. Right on the on the next podcast. All right, everybody. The next after the bows, which if you haven't checked it out, please do. It's on YouTube. It's pretty awesome and Facebook Live, but you can watch it retrospectively on YouTube. It's yes. a lot easier to find there. Also, our website has it. Yes. And it's really fun. We get to talk to original Broadway cast members. We also get to talk to creatives, super fans, people from regional productions. Right. And I'm and the 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 person we have, I don't want to give it away. The person we have for Smile next Tuesday um is a super fan. That's all I'm going to say. Super fan, and we're so excited. But about a super it. fan you may recognize. Right. It's a recognizable super fan that you might not know is a super fan, but maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we're so happy that you guys are enjoying this, and thank you so much. Please continue to respond, interact with us on social media. We absolutely love it. And uh, we hope to see you at After the Bows. All right, Christina, do you have a parting words for our, our listeners today? I do. Remember, butter sugar, flour, stay home and bake with Jenna. I want to see those sourdough loaves. And cookies. Bye! Bye.